Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dewey, your host. And I got to tell you, today's program, man, you are going to want to take notes, record it, download. I don't care what you do. You're going to need to um, refer to this program again and again and again. And I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, uh, we're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. But also our special edition of Tell Me Your Story is on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We have the podcast. I'll tell you about those locations a little later. We have the uh, we have the uh, 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 video cast as well, and um, we have a very special guest on the program today. Now I I go by uh, Reverend Doctor D because I am a reverend. And I have been given the moniker of Dr. D, or audio physician, primarily because of archival work that I do. But uh, our guest today also has uh, two very interesting designations, shall we say. Uh, he is not only a chef, he is also a doctor. Chef Dr. Mike is with us here on the program. And we are going to talk about probably something that encompasses every single aspect of your existence, my existence, and the rest of the planet's existence. We're going to title it Culinary Medicine. Uh, Doctor, uh, Chef Dr. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Uh, I saw the video uh, that they sent me a link to. I watched the whole thing from PBS, the special that you had. I was blown away, only because it's like, my God, I've been saying this kind of stuff, not the way, not with the expertise that you have, don't get me wrong, but I've been saying these same things for decades. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. And, um, you know, you're not the first person who's told me that, Richard. I mean, you know, I, I kind of tell folks, uh, you know, our distillation of the data and kind of where we are, and, and, and I get the same response, like, well, that you know, that's just kind of common sense, isn't it? And it's and it and it, and it really is. So, um, I want the the folks to relax. We're we're not going to get into the weeds. There's nothing complicated about this. And and I think, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of what we will talk about and and kind of distill out, you know, really when folks think about it, it's it's a whole lot of common sense. It really is. Um, I'm going to throw a couple things out to you. Now, I remember when organics first hit the uh, grocery stores, small little sections, and again, to grow and grow and grow. Uh, then you had these um, specialty stores pop up, uh, like uh, here in uh, California, here in the Santa Barbara County area, we've got a place called Sprouts and uh, Lazy Acres. Uh, I think here at Phoenix, we had... Um, uh, what was it? AJ's, I think it was. We also had another one, uh, uh, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And to my point, um, a few years ago in Ventura, there was a farmer who got nailed because he was labeling his strawberries organic. And when they did the uh, research, they found out, uh -uh, and he got nailed big time. Just recently, and I'm sure you heard the story, about Whole Foods and their meat. And they were labeling it organic. They were labeling it no hormones, no whatever else it is that they put into the, uh, the, the cows or the cattle. Uh, and then it turns out they've, been, they've had it for years. 
And I have said regarding organic, you can slap a label on anything and call it whatever you want. And people will buy it until you get caught. My personal observation about Whole Foods is I have a feeling they're done. I can't trust them to make sure that what I'm buying from them, and I'm not, I'm not sitting here trying to undermine them. I'm just saying, if I can't trust you to sell me what you're telling me you're selling me that is organic and so on and so forth, all natural, blah, 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 with the meat, how can I trust you on anything else? Well, that's absolutely right. And, and I could tell you as a chef, um, like most things in life, it, it's really about our relationships, right? And so as, as a chef, uh, particularly, you know, when I ran a kitchen, um, it was all about my relationship, you know, with my producers, um, whether that, you know, was back in the day, folks, um, you know, going down to Chesapeake Bay, whether it was uh, local farmers uh, growing, you know, vegetables, et cetera, uh, you know, whomever it is. Um, in the PBS special, you know, we focus on bison here in Montana and, you know, uh, Troy uh, down at, at Bitterroot Bison and knowing that, you know, what he's telling me he's doing is actually what he's doing. And you bring up a gr great point because as consumers, then we rely on people like the folks running Whole Foods that when they tell us, hey, we vetted this for you, you can trust us. Um, we're going to charge you more for it. We've done the work, et cetera. Uh, you, you put your faith in them and you put your money behind it. And then like in any relationship, once that trust is broken, boy, um, it's pretty hard to build that back. So yeah, uh, I, I, I agree a hundred percent and, and I encourage folks, you know, not to give up not to get soured on that. Um, but it may require a little bit of work on our end as consumers to really kind of research a little bit and, and vet our producers. I mean, the great thing is that there are so many folks out there doing it the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and I can also speak locally, um, certainly the area you're in as well. There are a lot of local growers who don't slap an organic label on it because unfortunately our, it's, it's harder and more expensive to grow food the way it should be grown than to grow it loaded with pesticides and herbicides and uh, chemical fertilizers, et cetera. Um, and so a lot of these folks actually, you know, meet organic standards or exceed them, mm -hmm. but they don't put that label on it because it's, it's too expensive. And as you said, if you get caught and it's just an error in the bookkeeping, man, the government's going to come down on you and those fines can break small businesses. So we have, you know, a great guy, uh, a great little local CSA uh, that we participate in. And I go down there and I see how he grows it. Um, I see the chickens out in the field and I know the things that I'm getting from there actually exceed what it would take to get an organic label. So there's lots of options up there. Don't give up hope. But uh, yeah, Whole Foods, um, they're going to work, have to work pretty hard to, to build that trust back. Indeed, indeed. And, and uh, another another area and you being a doctor and folks, this gentleman isn't just any old doctor. Uh, he is in the cardiovascular field, all right? Uh, and I have learned a great deal because my wife has worked in cardiology for probably close to 50 years. She worked for Mayo. She worked for Arizona Heart. She worked for uh, 
uh, several other places, including uh, locally here in Santa Barbara, Sansom Clinic, uh, both um, back in the 80s and then, of course, uh, when we returned here 16 years ago. And so I've learned an awful lot about that, and, and I have always reminded her how important her job is as an MA and as a tech and so forth, uh, because she is, uh, she is dealing with not just an organ, but on a metaphorical, metaphysical level, uh, an area of, of the, the, the soul or the spirit of a, an individual that is, you know, it's just, it's vital. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is, especially when it comes to culinary medicine, I've made this comment many times when we talk about health and wellness and so forth, preventative medicine, if you will, that we have the greatest pharmaceutical company in the universe, and that's the human body. However, the caveat is, unless you are supplying your body with the proper uh, elements to manufacture those chemicals, those pharmaceuticals, that will help your body to operate at its optimal level. Uh, you you can't think straight. Your emotions are all over the place. Um, you know, and, and the list goes on of, of issues. Not to mention the physiological damage, or changes, shall we say, that one does to the body. To me, when when I saw that phrase in the video from PBS culinary medicine i'm going i've never heard that phrase before but man is that right on talk to us about uh, about all of this well sure i and i agree you know a hundred percent and and really again it kind of goes back to relationships so our relationship uh with our food is the is really the foundation stone of a culinary medicine approach. So people often say, hey, Chef Dr. Mike, you know, it's, it's great. You know, I'm all about nutrition too. And, and food is fuel and, and you know, you know all, kind of all that uh, approach, food is medicine. And I'm like, look, you know, I'm an interventional cardiologist. So just so folks know, that means that when people were having heart attacks at 2 a.m., I'm the guy that got called in to open that artery up, put a stent in, use those powerful pharmaceuticals, you know, you just uh, referenced in an emergency situation. And, and, and that's, that is important to be able to do that. You know, when we have a saying in medicine, right, first stop the bleeding, when there's an emergency, we have to go in and, and we use all these modern uh, tools, techniques, drugs, etc. And, and certainly I've, I've made a career out of that, and I have no problem using them. But then we have to step back, right, and say, well, well, what brought you here? And, and where do we go from here? Uh, now that we've put that fire out, now that we've you know stopped that bleeding, uh, now that we've changed that flat tire, I don't want to send you back out on a road that's full of you know broken glass and nails, so that you're right back with the same thing mm -hmm. and the same situation. And so, um, what culinary medicine does is really look at our relationship with with food. And so, you know, like we're it, it's all about you. Uh, and, and it's all about your relationship with your with your food. And so that encompasses more than just nutrition. People don't realize, you know, nutrition is actually a very young science, only about 100 and something years old. And it really started um, and continues, unfortunately, with a mindset of deficiency disease. So, for example, like we found, hey, if you... Yeah, you know, have lemons or limes or make a margarita, right? You don't get scurvy. 
uh, i.e. vitamin C, take some vitamin C, you don't get scurvy. That's a deficiency state, what we call deficiency disease. That's very different than what we suffer from today, which is a chronic disability and disease, obesity, diabetes, heart disease. They're all rooted in a systemic, ongoing, low-level inflammation that, as Hippocrates noted over 2,500 years ago, seems to start in the gut. Mm-hmm. And so how and why does it start in the gut? Well, it starts because of our relationship with our gut bacteria. And so when we eat, um, the way we eat, with whom we eat, when we eat, and most importantly, what we put on that plate, particularly in the United States, when we're looking at such a high level, almost 70% of the average American's diet is ultra processed food. Mm. And these ultra processed foods contain things that human beings since the dawn of human beings have rarely never ever eaten before in any substantial quantities. And this gut bacteria, these bacteria, the symbiotic organ that runs interference for us when we eat, we're taking the environment outside, we're putting it inside our body where we're most vulnerable. And these bacteria, man, they're the, you know, they're the, 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 the offensive line, the defensive line, you know, running interference for us uh, from those foods we bring in. Um, they're exposed to things that they've never seen, that they have not evolved really to deal with. The end result, long and short, is that we start getting this inflammation and then that starts to build and sends us in this this cascade. So, you know, our relationship uh, with the foods we eat, um, them being natural foods, our relationship, restoring that balance with our gut bacteria, that's really at, at the heart of culinary medicine. And, and one of the great things uh, is that it, it's not about, you know, calories. It's not about saturated fat. Those occur naturally. Um, you know, it's about things that, that you love to eat. Um, I'm, today, you know, when we're recording, it's pizza day in my house. I'm, I'm a pizza fanatic. Mm-hmm. I, I love pizza. Uh, but there's a huge difference between Chef Dr. Mike's, you know, sourdough pizza that I'm crafting at home. My topping is just tomatoes and salt. Uh, some, you know, organic grass finished buffalo mozzarella, a few bits of basil from my windowsill, you know, versus a delivery pizza or a chain or store-bought pizza that's got all these other ingredients in it. And and so it's not about not having a pizza. It's about how we craft that pizza mm-hmm. and, and, and bringing that enjoyment and then sharing um, those experiences. So, um, you know, that's, that's really where culinary medicine is different from just looking at the biological and physiological processes by which an organism uses food to stay alive. We're not cars. Um, We don't just fuel up. We are human beings Mm -hmm. and our emotion, our emotional state, whom we eat with, whom we share that meal, uh, all those things affect our emotional state, which affects our physiologic state, which has impacts on our health. Um, what we eat, believe it or not, can change our gut bacteria. And these changes in our gut bacteria, believe it or not, can actually affect our emotional state. So one of the interesting things, which can get a little creepy when you think about it, is that we're actually not completely in charge of ourselves because we are a micro, we are uh, a, a micro environment. Um, an organism that consists of our human cells and who we are and the anywhere from 10 to 100 trillion bacteria that live in our body and interact with us all the time. Yeah. 
endlessly. It's it's it is truly an amazingly designed. I'll call. I'll just use the word machine, for lack of a better a better word. We're talking with Chef Doctor Mike, uh, and uh, we encourage you to uh, certainly to go to his website. And that website just so happens is well, golly, Chef <laughs> Doctor Mike C H E F D R M I K E. That's ChefDrMike.com, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're talking with Chef Dr. Mike. And one of the things that has occurred to me, I shouldn't say has occurred to me, that I was introduced to was this, um, this theory, I'll call it a theory, that one of the reasons why we have lost, uh, how was this phrased? Oh. What is the one invention, I'll ask you, Dr. Mike, what's the one invention that has uh, interfered with our connection with food? And you're going to be shocked. Um, The the one invention. I don't know how far back it goes. I haven't Googled that. (laughs) That has interfered with our connection uh, with food. With what we eat. I'm going to let you enlighten me on that. Believe it or not, it's the fork. The reason is because before utensils, we handled our food. We held it. We This is how we ate. And that was the way it was done. Okay? For example, if you ever watch uh, the any of these television shows or movies that take place during the medieval times, there are no forks, spoons, or knives. Well, there might be knives because they've got the swords, but there are no forks or spoons because they handled the food with their hands. So there was that physical, visceral contact with our food. Now, today we would, you know, say that's kind of barbaric and rude for you to be eating my meatloaf with your hands and that kind of thing. Um, but you said something just a few moments ago, and I'm going to kind of codify it down, but you said it in the video uh, in, in almost this way. You said that it is not just what we eat. It's how we eat. It's where we eat. It's who we eat with. Uh, it, it's, it's the entirety that surrounds the food that we take into our bodies. And that's why I said at the front end of this program, this this is going to encompass a person's entire life. Well, now, exactly, yeah. exactly, Richard. And what you describe is, again, um, what we were just talking about, which is that food experience. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, uh, you know, and I could ask you, you know, if you, you were to think about sort of the top 10 moments of import in your life, I guarantee you food would be involved in at least a couple of them, mm-hmm. yeah. um, whether it's a celebration, et cetera. Yeah. And expanding, you know, on your point about the utensils, you know, I, I would disagree with that slightly in that I don't think it's the utensils. I think it's the celebration of food and the food experience with each other that from time immemorial, right, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, our ancestors were, you know, just one of a group of social primates out on a plane somewhere um, trying to get by, you know, dodging saber-toothed tigers and, and hunting mastodons. And then one day, you know, one small group of primates, uh, somebody said, you know what, I'm taking these mastodon ribs, I'm throwing Ron Barbie. 
and we'll have a barbecue. And then we all sat around, you know, and around the fire and we had our food and we shared it and there was fire and fellowship and food. And that band of social primates became human beings. And, and we shared an experience. And throughout the history of humankind, you can track the history of food, right? You know, that you look at the spices and the spice trades and how that has shaped civilization. Most people, you know, know about Rome and, and the fall of Rome. What they don't realize that was, uh, along with silver and gold, one of the ransoms demanded by the barbarians of the Romans was pepper, food. Food was, was such, such a, a, a vital component. Um, it was how Vikings, um, bonded, you know, with each other and, and got these huge raiding parties that went out and, and changed, you know, the, the face of the globe, um, you know, in, as you mentioned, during the Middle Ages, you know, these these earls would throw these lavish parties. And if they were generous with their food and their meat and their ale, well, it's like, I'm not going with this guy. He's kind of a cheapskate. Yeah. You know, what, I'm not going to get my share of booty out there. I'm not raiding with him. So, you know, food in essence, as I as I term it, has been social currency. And we've started to lose that in our modern society because we've become, although we have at our disposable tweets and texts and everything, in a way we've become more disconnected. And so, you know, we eat mindlessly and we don't have that sharing over the food, as you said, when, you know, we all got around the table and we were just, you know, hands on at the at the buffet. Yeah, it's it, it is a kind of uh, an unfortunate thing. And I have to say that when I hear people talking about um, uh, bringing back if, if they've sort of lost it, bringing back the the evening meal at the very least, if not lunch or breakfast. Um, I mean, I look back and you're talking about those moments in time. I look back, not necessarily to a specific meal, but to the numerous dinners that we as a family of eight had around the dining room table. I mean, my father built these, um, he built two of these square uh, center-supported tables that we would bring together, to use C-clamps to hold them together. We'd put a tablecloth down, we'd make the, we'd set the table and um, then the food, you know, we'd bring the food to the table and we'd all sit down. We always sat. I thought this was real interesting. We never changed seats. I was always sitting next to my ambidextrous sister who always ate with her left hand. I always wondered why they didn't put her on the end and, and, and me on the other end or something, you know, so she didn't have any conflict. But it was those meals that I remember sitting around and we did talk and of course then after a while you started just hearing the clink of the silverware against the plate you know because everybody was hungry uh and just thinking wow that is really cool and we've lost that too you know because we're in such a hurry because of our the way that our society our civilization has uh grown uh, maybe grown i'm not sure because when you start losing some of those aspects that you just described about sitting around the fire, eating off the the uh, the dinosaur ribs or what have you, or whatever the, the the animal is, you don't have the connection. You don't have the community, uh, and and we aren't talking tribalism here. We're talking community. There's a big difference between tribalism and community. And food has usually been a part of that. We're talking with Chef Dr. Mike here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and Chef Dr. Mike, uh, I'm curious as to uh, uh, your 
your uh, path to these two titles. I personally uh, worked for a very short time uh, in a restaurant. I started, of course, as a dishwasher. One of the frustrating things for me was uh, back in, um, what was it, the 70s, I um, had to go get a, uh, I had to go get a health card. And um, so I went and did the state's uh, deal. We did, got the health card, came back to the restaurant after getting that health card, and nobody was following the rules, smoking in the food prep area and all these kinds of things. And I just thought, what was the point of me getting this card? You know, I, I you know, I, but, you know, so I've had that experience of um, knocking over a stack of plates onto the floor and many of them breaking. And, of course, you hear in the audience in the in the restaurant, oh, hey, you know, it's like. That's not helping. Thanks a lot. But how did you get started combining uh, the the aspect of food as a chef and the the medical aspects as a cardiologist? Um, and I, I, I want to jump real quickly right back to the the story you told about eating together. Sure, because that's an aspect of culinary medicine, and I want to share the wisdom of what you just said with some of the actual data that we have on that. So for example, uh, we know uh, just exactly as you mentioned, look, it doesn't have to be every night. It doesn't have to be every meal, but if you can have one or two meals, you know, particularly during the week where you come together and eat, what studies have shown is that kids who are exposed to that growing up, when they are middle-aged adults tend to be healthier and tend to make healthier food choices. And when we look at some of the recent data, which is quite alarming, that shows that, you know, from age five onwards, uh, the average American eats about 70 percent ultra processed food. And Harvard has predicted a tsunami of heart disease, diabetes and obesity in the next 15 or 20 years based on these kids eating like this and now getting into their late 20s, 30s. When we'll see the manifestation of disease as a consequence of this. Um, what we find is that when we look, many people say, well, you know, that's just a function of socioeconomics and, and people who have money eat better. Well, um, the, the truth is, it turns out that Americans, regardless of how much money they eat, all eat like crap. Uh, so it doesn't matter what socioeconomic uh, bracket you fall in. Um, almost all the kids are eating garbage. But when we look uh, by ethnicity, uh, what they found was that uh, Caucasians, African-Americans tend to group together, uh, but Hispanics tended to have less ultra-processed food consumption. And in digging into that data, what they found is that um, in Hispanic homes, there is more often exactly what you just described, where at least one or two days a week, you know, on the weekends, they're having these larger family meals. They tend to be involved less ultra-processed food because there's home cooking going on. So these kids are eating less ultra-processed food. And, and you know, uh, down the road, the data suggests they're going to have health benefits for that. So it's not only sort of a nostalgia um, that, you, that you bring up, but an action that we look at and we study in culinary medicine because this has broad implications for health now and public health issues you know, in the decades to follow. So I, I just wanted to comment on what an important point and great observation um, that was that, that you shared. And, and there is a lot of science and, and, and data behind that as well. Hmm. So let's talk about your the connecting of uh, 
being a cardiologist and uh, being a chef, I mean, a chef. Now, it seems pretty obvious the two really do go together because, uh, you know, everybody's concerned about their cholesterol and, and of course, uh, single, double, triple, quadruple bypasses and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so I'm just curious as to uh, how and when the light bulb went off in your mind. I, I need to I need to bring these two together. Well, I, I actually, I started in food first. So uh, growing up in, in days before the Internet, we moved around a lot. And so I was always kind of a new kid on the block. And, uh, you know, kids being kids, um, you know, there was a lot of sort of uh, ostracizing of the of the foreigner, of the new kid. And my mom was a great home cook, uh, loved, you would watch Julia Child, the Galloping Gourmet. And when I, about the time I got home from school, she'd be in the kitchen fixing, you know, stuff from cookbooks or what she had seen that day. And I'd jump right in. And, and so I really learned about food, um, but food also healed me. Um, I didn't realize it at the time in the kitchen, uh, being exposed to that. And so when I went to college and had to, you know, help pay for college, uh, like you talked about, uh, food was a natural place to go. There weren't really celebrity chefs then. Nobody actually wanted to work in a kitchen back then. Mm. And so I went in and said, I'm here ready to be your chef. And they said, there's a stack of dishes. We need a dishwasher. <laughs> and so uh, they said, if you're willing to, to wash dishes, then as soon as something opens on the line, it would, it's a short order place, uh, you know, we'll promote you there. And so they, they kept their word and I washed dishes for six months nonstop, uh, then worked my way up to the line, uh, then went to another restaurant uh, where I would be what we call today kind of a sous chef, a junior chef, mm -hmm. uh, got trained to run the back of the house uh, as an executive chef. And then by the time I left college, uh, going off to medical school on Friday nights or Saturday nights, depending how we divided the, the weekends, I would be running the back of the house uh, as what well, today we would call an executive chef. Uh, went off to uh, medical school, uh, internship, residency, uh, cardiology, um, residency, cardiology fellowship, etc. Um, eventually went back uh, and got my culinary degree in gourmet cooking and catering from Ashworth University outside of Atlanta. Uh, but during that time, you know, uh, I had the opportunity to cook at a restaurant, which today, um, you know, would be kind of spot on. I didn't didn't appreciate, you know, we got our seafood from the Chesapeake Bay three times a week. We had local farmers su supplying us, you know, our vegetables. Uh, so I really knew and was trained in uh, kind of a local vor almost uh, type of, of, of restaurant, although it wasn't known as such back in the day. And I got busy like a lot of people do with life and internship and residency and cardiology fellowships are pretty demanding, you know, on your time, uh, on your responsibilities and, and calls. So I got away from what I knew good food was uh, and did like a lot of folks do what was convenient and, you know, eating on the go and what the drug reps would bring into the cath lab. You know, I'd be grabbing those, uh, et cetera. And then I had some health challenges. Um, you know, doctors told me I needed surgery and I needed it like a couple of years ago. And I said, well, um, being a physician, the first thing I'm going to do is get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and then the second birth was same as the first. And I said, well, um, you know, there's a, some limited options here and I'll go with that. And then what can I do? Um, this is a result of inflammation. So I really started to look into it to heal myself, right? Physician, heal thyself. 
And uh, I was, uh, you know, told I, I needed those surgeries well over, I guess, about 25, almost 30 years ago. Um, haven't still still don't need them. Um, so I'm still out there a little more limited in some of my joint things, but um, I don't have the joint replacements and, you know, I'm still able to, to, to hike and, and, and do things. And I uh, started seeing that what I had been told to tell patients, sort of the conventional wisdom, wasn't really what the data was showing me. Um, you know, I, I spent some time doing NIH research at the University of Virginia in microvascular physiology, and I was brutalized by a PhD, uh, um, you know, mentor who was so tough because he's like, you MDs don't know how to do research. You don't know the the actual scientific rigors. You guys are phonies. And so he would just grill us and, and really made us work hard to learn how to interpret and analyze data and what were the proper conclusions and how did you know this and, and what does statistical significance mean really, et cetera, so on and so forth. And so when I started looking, I was like, you know, the, the data isn't matching what I'm telling people to do over here. Let me go deeper. And the deeper I went, the more I was like, well, this is really what the data is saying to do. And it, it took me on a path which wound up being the common sense we talked about at the beginning, which is like, eat real food. Um, don't eat, don't eat ultra processed crap, eat real food. Yeah. Um, you know, eat it with joy, uh, eat it with gratitude. Uh, those things make a difference. Share that, share those meals. Um, th that human interaction is important. Uh, I'll give you a, a non-food related example. So as a cardiologist, when I look at risk factors for cardiovascular disease, one of the most potent, as you mentioned, cholesterol is one, but just as potent as any cholesterol level, Richard, is depression. Depression is as potent mm. a risk factor for having cardiovascular disease and a heart attack as any cholesterol level. But how many times do you, you hear a doctor say, you know, do things that make you happy? Try to be happy, work on depression, right? Mm -hmm. Why? It's easy for me to write a pharmaceutical, check your cholesterol level, have a number to guide me. Easy, efficient, um, things are written out. Hard for me to write, Richard, I want you to have five units of happiness every morning. <laughs> um, I could get in trouble with your wife, depending on how you interpret it. <laughs> you know, so, so because we don't really have a good way to measure it, we yeah. don't have a good way to administer it. Uh, there's no company that's selling that. Um, you know, we we tend not to use it. But does that mean that it's not as important? Does it mean it's not real? Absolutely yeah. not. From a scientific perspective, yeah. we have the data sets. So these things um, all come into play when we when we look at that food experience. When we look at at culinary medicine, um, and so that's what I've brought together. Um, because the data really is telling us, one of my earlier books was The Fallacy of the Calorie, that for the over half century, we've been told, eat this, don't eat that, uh, just do what I say, watch your calories, don't eat saturated fat, don't eat eggs, wait, eggs are okay, oh, wait, you can have saturated fat from avocados and nuts, oops, sorry about that, um, you know, that, that we get beyond and start to look at this, and things that I wrote about in that book, Fallacy of the Calorie, which is about a decade old now, have really come to fruition. A couple of years ago, the government got rid of cholesterol guidelines because they said, you know what? When we look at it, there's no data that eating foods and cholesterol translates into any kind of, of risk factor for health. And in fact, people who eat eggs as part of their regular diet have a better lipid profile than people that abstain. 
So it's it's all about um, sort of getting back in the groove of our connections in a positive way with our food experience, eating real wholesome food, um, and eating it in a way that that brings us pleasure and joy. And, and, and that is part of the chef bias for me. Chef Dr. Mike is our guest here on the program. He's an interventional cardiologist, a professional chef, professor of culinary medicine. He's also the author of a number of books, including Food Shaman, the Art of Quantum Food. And his website is Chef Dr. Mike. That's C-H-E-F-D-R-M-I-K-E dot com. We will be linked to that website as well so that you folks can find out more, not only about Dr. Chef Dr. Mike, but also about uh, some of the other work that he does, the books and so forth. And um, we'll continue our conversation with him as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And Chef Dr. Mike, I, I am so fascinated by this conversation because uh, it, it's so all-encompassing. Um, the, the phrase, if you have your health, you have everything. I've heard it said, too, that you know, if your feet hurt, you hurt all over. Well, you know what? That's absolutely true because your feet are the foundation upon which you walk. And if they're out of alignment, guess what? Everything else up goes out of whack, too. And I'm a prime example of that. I finally was able to uh, to get the right insoles and so forth and support. And I love walking, Doc. I had tell you what, when I had uh, 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 a knee issue, which turned out to be a meniscus that I went in and I had uh, done arthroscopically, I believe, uh, as soon as that was over, I was up walking around that day, and I haven't had a problem with that knee ever since. And it's just been great. Uh, the other aspect of it, too, is with health, I was diagnosed, Doc, a little over two years ago with uh, type 2 diabetes okay now i can tell you today i do not have type 2 diabetes do you know how long it took me to get my uh, blood sugar back down where it was supposed to be a month and a half now uh i remember that my doctor telling me this story of this guy whose uh, a1c was uh, i i don't know it was seven or eight hundred or something i don't know what it was and in six months, he managed to bring it down to uh, 7 or 6.5 or whatever. And, of course, the normal is in the 5 range. Mine was 11.5, my A1C. My blood sugar reading uh, uh, extrapolated from that was 275. He said it might have even peaked at 300 and that kind of stuff. Well, my big bugaboo at the time was sodas. Uh, and it wasn't so much the sugar, although I did have a, a, a you know really strong sweet tooth. It was the fizz. I liked the bubbles. I liked that little bite on the back of the throat. It just I don't know. It just felt good. And I've been drinking them for decades. When I delivered newspapers as a kid, I built a cup holder on my bicycle to hold the sixty-four <laughs> ounce to hold that sixty-four ouncer. But see, I was bicycling, so I didn't gain weight. I was burning it off as I went. Anyway. The last soda I ever had was uh, a Coke made uh, with, uh, it was from Mexico, as they say, because it's made with supposedly real cane sugar. Like that's supposed to make a difference. The last one I had was on the 23rd of July, uh, 2020. And the doc says, 
Hey, you know, Richard, this is going to be a long road for you, a long journey, long journey. I says, no, it's not. I says, I know how I got here. Not just the sodas. What did everybody else, you know this as well as I do, I'm sure. What everybody, everybody went to as far as foods when we all were locked down in March of 2020? It was, it was comfort foods, which are processed foods, which have carbs and sugars. And that's why my blood sugar went, went through the roof, as it were. So we went back to our regular diet, if you will. You know, for, matter of fact, that first meal that we had after I was diagnosed, we went to the local restaurant, a sit-down restaurant. We ordered their fried chicken sandwich. No bread. Keep the avocado, please. And a salad. No fries. And that's how we started, and that was fine. Uh, so when I see these commercials for these different medications, it'll bring your A1C down to 7. I'm going... What? Mine was at 11.2 and I got it down to 5.7 in a month and a half. What is the deal here? Turns out, and this is something I'd love for you to address, the willpower that people don't have to follow through when they know the potential hazards. Um, I've said before, Doc, that uh, Chef Doc, (laughs) (laughs) if the Earth were to hold a seminar for the rest of the universe, it would be on crisis management. We don't know how to do preventative, but we do know how to crisis manage. Talk to us a little bit about this aspect of willpower um, and how that in and of itself can be affected by what we're eating. Well, first, you know, you just nailed modern Western medicine. Uh, Richard, right? It's all crisis management. Um, that's what we do. And, and, and really, as an interventional cardi- cardiologist, that's what I did for so many years, put out the fire. People having a heart attack, artery closed, open artery. Um, and, and it actually comes, you know, I find it often helpful to gain a perspective on things um, by looking at how they evolved and, and the history of it. And the history of Western medicine is really battlefield medicine. Um, and so that's all about, as you said, crisis management, stop the bleeding, um, all the way back to Galen, you know, working on gladiators in the Coliseum and addressing those types of injuries. And then yeah. the modern Western um, sort of foundation for the triage approach uh, developing during mm-hmm. the Civil War with the uh, uh, idea of ambulances and getting these folks out and then triaging, which limb you sort of had to amputate first. And then the people that you couldn't save with a gut shot, you know, went a- into into one area. So that concept of triage. So crisis management is, is exactly uh, modern Western medicine. And, and so when people come and present with diabetes, right, it starts on a medication, uh, we've got to get that blood sugar down, and that's fine. But then we don't go to solving the problem, the root cause of the problem that you addressed in your solution. And to give your listeners some statistics, uh, which may blow their minds, and this isn't Chef Dr. Mike's opinion, this is actually Harvard University data, mm-hmm. that 90%, and you heard that correctly, 90% or 9 out of 10 cases of type 2 diabetes are preventable doing exactly the things that you did to recover. For people who already have type 2 diabetes, depending on, on, on where you, you look, mm-hmm. anywhere mm-hmm. from 60 to 80% of the cases can follow in your footsteps, Richard. And that is a what we call a reversal, or essentially they've cured themselves of mm-hmm. type 2 diabetes. 
But my frustration is your frustration because all we see on television is none of the communication of this information and knowledge to empower people to even pursue this. It's here's another drug. And if this drug isn't working for you, we'll put this pharmaceutical on top of it. And so I think part of the challenge is that a lot of people just don't know. Um, a lot of people, you know, don't have the, the gumption and the confidence and really the medical guidance um, to do what you did because, you know, I, I had one uh, of our students, um, uh, we offer our culinary medicine course online, the same one we teach the students at the university. And one of my online students wrote to me and said, her sister was just diagnosed as a diabetic and she went to her doctor and said, can you help me get some dietary advice to, to really kind of, she wanted to do what you did, Richard. Mm -hmm. And the advice from her physician, you know, communicated to me was, oh, that stuff doesn't work. It's not going to it's not going to be effective. Please just go ahead and take the medication and, and then don't worry about your diet. Like you could take the pill and then just go eat whatever you want. Yeah. And so that, I think, is a major impediment to these types of solutions. And it's one of you're, you're touching on something, forgive the pun, near and dear to my heart, because this is really one of the messages and, and one of the missions of culinary medicine is to is to get out there and empower people with the knowledge and then empower them with the techniques so they can sit down like I'm going to do tonight and have a pizza that's good for them to have a meal that they enjoy with company that they enjoy and and it's healing them and it's delicious going through life with a sense of deprivation about food is no way to live. And, and I'm going to share a quick story from a colleague of mine. And she shared with, this with me some years ago when we were talking about culinary medicine. And she had had an, an elderly gentleman whom, um, and she was a, just a great diagnostician, and she had diagnosed him with an oral cancer. And uh, so she then referred him to the specialist and he had the surgery, chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And she had followed him and and had seen them right after five years. And at five years, for folks who don't know, if you have no trace of cancer, you're considered to be cancer-free, a cancer survivor, because statistically speaking, your risk of, of, of having that recur is about the same as the general population. So we say that's where we kind of define our cancer cures. And she's like, you know, Mr. So-and-so, congratulations. You know, you are cancer-free. You did it. And she said he started to tear up and he started to cry. And, you know, uh, she started, she told me she started to tear up as well. And he said, you know, Doc, um, I am so grateful for you. Uh, you know, you made the diagnosis. You, you saved me. I thank all the doctors and the surgeons and the nurses and everyone in healthcare who helped me. Uh, but I've got to tell you, um, for five years, I have not been able to taste a single thing I've eaten. And honestly, I would have rather just died. And so mm. that simple pleasure that we talk about that we that we can get from that food experience when we share uh, that food experience with someone um, is so, so powerful. And we can make that a positive one where we're eating those right foods like you talked about you doing that are healing us, that are building us up. And as much as we can get in a negative tailspin. With all, as you said, you know, ordering Uber Eats and getting that ultra processed <laughs> food delivered and getting in this negative tailspin because the, the compounds in those foods, particularly the salt, sugar uh, and fats that are layered in there, 
um, and construct it as to as something we call a bliss point in the food manufacturing industry um, essentially works the same way in our brain as opiates. And we know as a country how successful we've been in managing our opiate addiction. Oh, yeah. Well, food addiction, <laughs> ultra processed foods is no different. Yeah, absolutely astounding. Sometimes you have to wonder uh, what what these people are thinking or not thinking. Doctor, Chef Dr. Mike is my guest here on the program. Tell me your story. And we're talking about so many different things that are all connected, folks. They are all connected. He is an interventional uh, cardiologist, professional chef, professor of culinary medicine, and he has written many books, but uh, in particular, Food Shaman. I love the, the concept of a, a, a shaman, let alone a food shaman. The Art of Quantum Food, and his website is chefdrmike.com. That's uh, C-H-E-F-D-R-M-I-K-E dot com, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is such a pleasure to have uh, Chef Dr. Mike on the program here with me, Reverend Dr. <laughs> uh, Dr. D. Uh, we talk about these subjects all the time, Chef Dr. Uh, Mike, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of nice but there's there there are a couple of areas I wanted to touch on uh, with the time we have remaining. One of them is because you've mentioned this uh, at least uh, more than once on the program so thus far. Our source information in this country today we have a huge problem with trusting authorities. Now in the '60s, and I was a young kid, single digits. Uh, at that time, but I do remember the phrase, uh, always question authority. Okay, I get that, always question. Well, we've taken that to a new level. Don't trust authority. Don't trust the government. Don't trust the institutions. Um, and uh, you'll get a kick out of this one. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, don't trust anything that you read on the Internet. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That must be true if he said it. About Absolutely, it must be. It's right at the end of the Gettysburg Address. Uh, <laughs> but we have that issue going on in this country today. Now, what flashed in my mind when you were talking about the influences on our uh, the various aspects, uh, compartments, of you will, if you will, of our human beingness, I wonder what people were. Uh, consuming over the course of a number of years who tried to sack the Capitol on January 6th because I'm not real ha I, I, my friend a dear friend of mine who passed away uh, some years ago had a bumper sticker uh, he says uh, he says uh, the bumper sticker said something words to the effect I don't trust my government it's 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 the it's the country that I trust. In other words, the people, we the people. And I kind of feel that way sometimes because uh, of the contradictory infor information that we get. Uh, but I'm not going to jump on a plane or a train or a bicycle across country to try to work my way into um, violently, in essence, overthrow the government. Because, there's, you know, I look at it this way. I'm on the West Coast. You're in Montana. There is nothing that we, either of us, can do about what they're doing there in Washington, D.C. There's nothing. I mean, they say, well, you vote. Yeah, but 
it seems like nothing changes no matter who you vote for. So we need to be about the business of doing what we can for ourselves right here. Do for you and me as individuals, for the family around, the people around us, and for our community. We talked about community earlier. If that means setting a, setting a fire and uh, roasting a pig on a spit, go for it. But what about this, this distrust of information? And I want to throw one other element in there. Our intuition. We talk about it all the time. We ask people to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, 2020s, where we ask people to go within and listen to that still small voice. Talk to us about either the connection or the dichotomy between the outside information and the inside voice. Well, you know, and, and I mentioned this earlier, sort of in my personal journey was the realization that what I was telling people as the conventional wisdom, which I didn't question, it was sort of handed out to me from the authorities, was contradictory, you know, to, it was sort of contradictory at times to my own common sense. Um, you mentioned avocados. Mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a kid vacationing with my parents, we would, you know, often go to, uh, I grew up in the Northeast. I'm a, I'm a native New York City boy and uh, grew up around there. And, and so we'd go, you know, south during the winter and, you know, in areas where people ate, you know, tons of avocados and and they were never sick, right? There wasn't a cardiologist to be found around there. <laughs> you know, they were eating seafood and avocados and ceviche. And yet there I, I was getting recommendations from my professional organization saying people shouldn't eat avocados because they're very high in saturated fat and that's bad. And so that was something that, that was very counterintuitive to me. And, and in that journey, as you said, um, I'm all about questioning authority. And, and I love when people question me. Um, and, and that's why when I give information, um, if you look at my articles um, in the Psychology Today, uh, where I have a column, <clears throat> any of the articles I write, uh, the courses that I teach, uh, certainly in the book, uh, Food Shaman, um, I, I had a discussion with the publisher because the reference list is like 40 pages. And they're like, you're jacking up our publication costs. And you're going to get really, they're like, you're going to get less money because it's costing us more to publish this. Do we really have to have this, you know, this huge appendix of references? And I was like, absolutely. If Chef Dr. Mike's telling somebody that they can have a steak, uh, and they have to source it correctly. And, you know, I'm saying, you, yeah, red meat, sure, you can have it if you want it. But you have to source it correctly because a drive-through burger is not the same as a grass-finished, you know, uh, bison T-bone. Um, and here's why. I better be able to give them the data. Uh, so that's why I always put it out there that if, if you know, somebody looks and they say, and, or you say, uh, Chef Dr. Mike, that sounds a little funky to me. And where'd you get that? Here's the study. Here's how I derive that. Um, you're welcome to your own opinion. Yeah. And that's why I talk about the difference in culinary medicine is about empowering people and giving you information and tools and let you make your own decision based on that intuition, based on what's right for you. Only you know is what's right for you. You know your diet. Mm -hmm. You know what you like to eat. I don't. Yeah. I can't taste something for you uh, <laughs> and, and tell you it's good. Um, only you can do that. And so... Um, I want to empower people, give them the tools that they need and uh, let them make that decision versus how it's been done for the last over half century. Eat this. Don't eat that. Take this pill. Uh, do this. 
Um, and, and we need to sort of give the control of, of certainly somebody's story, um, which I look at, at the food and I can tell the story of my life through the foods I've experienced and, you know, how much my mom loved me through her chicken soup she made me every time uh, I was sick. Uh, and the fact that I've tried to recreate that a hundred times, it's a pretty good chicken soup. But, you know, it's caca next to what my mom was doing. <laughs> um, and I'm a professional chef, and she wasn't, you know. So it's it's those sorts of things. And, and I think we absolutely have to, forgive the pun, but get in touch with our gut feelings, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and I mentioned it earlier, our gut, and I think anyone who's had a, a dog or a cat would say that they're intelligent creatures mm-hmm. and they have their own personalities. Well, you have the the neuronal capacity in your gut that is equivalent to a dog or cat. Uh, many people refer to the fact that our gut was our first brain because that's where the neuronal plexus developed as single cell organisms uh, in search of food. That was our first job uh, as, as we little, you know, singular celled organisms. Um, and there is this constant connection. We used to think the brain told the stomach what to do. Well, it turns out that it's it's more like I-95 or maybe, you know, uh, Interstate 4 where you are, uh, you know, <laughs> where the traffic never stops going back and forth between the gut and the brain. In those gut signals are um, all these messages from the gut bacteria that's constantly interpreting our environment in terms of what we have decided to eat. Yeah. If I were to draw a blood sample at any time, almost half, about 40% of the message molecules throughout your body will have originated in the gut. So these gut feelings we have, this gut brain we have, um, this intuition, whatever you'd like to call it, mm-hmm. uh, very, very real, and 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 listen to it. Um, it's It's often... Right, because it's analyzing things and perceiving things um, that because of the volume of, of information, our conscious brain can't process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, listen, you know, it, it came down to me um, when I uh, presented my materials in my first book to my colleagues at universities. And they said, hey, Mike, I love this. Uh, you're spot on. That is great. No way in hell I can give you um, a testimonial. Uh, because it goes against everything that I'm I'm recommending. It goes against everything from the professional organizations. I kid you not. And in secret, I support you. Go at it publicly. I can. I'll get fired from the university. Uh, I'll, I'll lose my position mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it was like, okay, you know, Chef Dr. Mike, um, are you willing to take that pirate stand, hoist the black flag, and and you know, go in search of of a, a, a truth. You know, not all treasure is, is silver and gold, mate. Sometimes it's a simple truth and the simple facts. And so I'm all about folks, you know, taking that taking that stand. Uh, question me, ask me in time, you know, how did you get that? What What's your data set if if this doesn't jive with what you said? And I give it to you and listen and, and follow your gut. You know, um, it's often attributed to the Buddha that he said, you know, that he, he spoke, and I'm paraphrasing here, believe nothing no matter where you have heard it or where you have read it, even if you heard it from me, from Chef Dr. Mike, Mm -hmm. if it does not agree with your own common sense and your own experience. Yeah. Chef Dr. Mike is our guest here on the program. We are talking about virtually uh, your entire existence here on the planet. (laughs) 
as it is impacted, affected, influenced, if you will, by everything that you consume. Not and, and interestingly enough, folks, it's not just through your mouth. It's through your five and or six senses. We're talking with a an interventional cardiologist, a professional chef, professor of culinary medicine, and author of many books, including Food Sham and the Art of Quantum Food. Website is chefdrmike.com. That's uh, C-H-E-F-D-R-M-I-K-E.com. We'll be linked to that website as well as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. Chef Dr. Mike is joining us here on the program, and we're talking about the work that he is doing through both his uh, medical and culinary expertise. And, um, you know, I I was thinking about this. Uh, You said uh, something to the effect, uh, uh, you know, taste, uh, taste, uh, you know, you can't taste things for us. And what that brought back to mind was the phrase that I heard on one of these um, cooking shows with one of the celebrity chefs, uh, who, again, uh, is probably a great chef. But uh, said basically, as he's t- telling these these competitors, be sure as you're going along, taste everything, taste everything. And I would watch some of these people as they're they're going along and they're not tasting anything. And I'm thinking, did you not hear what he said? Because to me, that is the bottom line, because then then the, the celebrity chefs come around and they te- check just kind of let me let me try it. Let me have a spoon here and t- you know that this needs blah 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 or that or this taste this way that way. Our taste buds are uniquely different, and as such, you've got yourself as a chef. You're tasting everything as you're going along. For to you, it tastes fabulous. You put it down in front of the uh, the customer, the 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 person who's going to consume your. Uh, your, your wares there, so to speak? Eh, I don't know about this. This doesn't taste, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, how do you bridge that gap be, of the differences in, shall we say, tasting uh, from one person, one person to the next in terms of making sure that, uh, it, it's, that they enjoy it? I mean, you know, because, again, that's part of it. It's like if it, you can have the greatest of ambiance. You can have uh, all of the, the, the necessary things uh, to, um, uh, to make the experience fantastic. And if the food, I'm just going to say, if the food tastes like crap, then all of the other stuff just goes out the window. Yeah, and it's pretty simple. The customer's always right. So, you know, I do it to the best of my ability um, and trying to, you know, balance, uh, make sure it's balanced, make sure it's seasoned, uh, make sure there are layers of flavor. Uh, I craft it as as well as I, I can. And and when I when you know when the when I uh, approve it at the pass, and then it's taken to the customer, and the customer you know sends it back, or the customer says, um, you know, I need ketchup. Uh, to you know to put on this steak um that's their choice you know that's their flavor and we have to respect that um you know i know what it was when i sent it out um and as long as you know i've crafted it to the best of my ability um recipes are the same way and and that's why i tell folks you know everybody's like oh can you give me a recipe i want to follow this recipe it's like recipes are more like guidelines right use that recipes to me are a way to learn something so you might be learning how to braise something. You might be learning um, how to make an emulsion. 
Uh, you might be learning how to bring some flavors together. So uh, the other day I was sharing with someone uh, a homemade basil fresh uh, French sorrel mayonnaise. And, and the sorrel uh, brings this almost vinegary kind of balance uh, to it that, that works very well with the, with the basil and, and, and use that on things. Um, but, you know, ultimately it, it, they take that and then craft that to their taste, to their experience. Cause, and, and that's where, again, culinary medicine is so different than nutrition where you need to eat this and so many carbs and this, that. No, it's about your food experience, about mm -hmm. what makes you happy. So instead of telling you what to eat, which is the traditional nutrient centric approach, you need these nutrients, you need these foods, eat this, don't eat that. I'm asking you and I'm saying, hey, hey Richard, what do you like to eat? Is it a pizza? Is it a burger? Uh, is it pasta? Okay, now let's find a healthy way to craft that in terms of how we source these ingredients like you were talking about, avoiding the ultra processed ingredients, getting these quality ingredients that, that are gonna um, feed not only our satisfaction uh, with the meal, but you know, nourish our body and feed our soul with the experience. Well, it is uh, it is uh, uh, very deep. It's very complex at times, uh, but it, it does come down to what is it that you like. There is a a a, a, a an alternative. Um, I'll call it sort of a medicine practice, uh, but it, it it expands beyond that. It's called kinesiology that I learned, God, probably thirty five, maybe forty years ago. Um, <clears throat> where, you, you know, you take your finger and you make the ring, you know, the kind of thing, and then you take the other hand, and then you do yes and no. And if it's yes, you know, it holds. If it's no, it breaks kind of thing. And after a while, you don't need to do that because that internal voice, if you will, tells you automatically, eh, no, I don't think I want that. I want this over here. Um, questions kind of been gnawing at me since we started, and you started talking about the processed foods. And of course, they told me that they told us as we were growing up, uh, even back in the the 80s, always shop at the ends and back of the store. Don't shop in the middle because that's where all the processed foods are. Uh, but I'm curious, are there any good <laughs> processed foods as far as you as far as your experience? Are there really any good ones? Yeah, so, so there's a, a, a quick distinction that we make between processed foods. So the pizza I'm making tonight is technically a processed food, right? I've, I've taken uh, my raw ingredients of flour, made a dough, sourdough dough. I let that ferment. Um, uh, the, the cheese is what uh, is, is a type of, of processed foods. So we use something that was developed at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil just a little over 10 years ago called the Nova classification, which looks at sort of raw ingredients, which might be raw milk. Then we look at, you know, uh, minimally processed things like a, uh, our culinary ingredient, like butter that we use in other things. Then we uh, look at a processed food like the pizza I'm making, but then there's ultra processed foods. And so in our study of culinary medicine, we have specific criteria that we use to define them. And one of the things which is very underappreciated, but turns out to be incredibly important, is that in, in making ultra-processed foods, we take the way nature has packaged it, what mm -hmm. we call the food matrix, and we destroy it. We degrade it totally. And then we put it back together. And when we put it back together, we add things like these sugar, salts, fats, additives, preservatives, etc. And in this reassembling, 
we do something distinctly uh, detrimental and, and altering the natural food stuff such that there's something just beyond the nutrient composition. And this has been shown in a number of studies, uh, particularly a landmark one done by uh, Kevin Hall at the uh, NIH uh, was published uh, just a year or two ago. Uh, where he gave somebody uh, diets, he matched diets, so exactly the same calories. And then not only exactly the same calories, exactly the same nutrients, same amount of sat fat, same amount of, of carbohydrates, same amount of, of sugar. So that the only difference in these two diets was one had ultra processed foods like Chef Boyardee ravioli, uh, Honey Nut Cheerios, uh, Lego Mayegos, et cetera. And then the other one had the same constituents, but they were all minimally processed foods like my homemade pizza or homemade pasta, et cetera. And, and what they found the long and short of it was when people ate ultra processed foods, they gained weight and levels uh, and markers of inflammation went up. And then when they switched to minimally processed foods, those things went down and they spontaneously lost weight and they got better like you did with your diabetes. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't know what food scientists are doing, but whatever they're doing is making people, Americans, and many other people around the world, sicker and fatter. And so there is something inherent in the destruction of the way nature packages our food. And then when we put it back together, that alters the way and the relationship we have with that food in our body. And there are some other things that, that we look at in terms of defining those ultra processed foods. So we specifically identify those foods as the ones we want to get off their, our plate. One of the number one sources of those types of foods in the American diet, Richard, you nailed it earlier, soft drinks. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter whether they have sugar or they have non-nutritive uh, sweeteners. Uh, a study published just a few weeks ago looked at four popular zero calorie sweeteners, including stevia, and found that they all alter our gut bacteria. Mm. Is there a, is there, and just as a sidebar, is there a particular sweetener that is um, less detrimental or beneficial as opposed to some of these others? Sure. So what I call, I call these sort of sweeteners of redemption. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're making a dessert on a special occasion, then I recommend, as you alluded to earlier in the Mexican Cokes, just use some real, you know, uh, table sugar, uh, molecule sucrose, and uh, molecule glucose and fructose, uh, table sugar. But if I'm working with things, I try to use something like maybe um, organic maple syrup. Uh, has a, it has its own flavor profile, which intrigues me as a, as a chef. It's also a source of other, you know, valuable uh, vitamins and minerals, things like manganese uh, that we utilize in our diet. So a uh, honey, you know, is another sort of sweetener of redemp redemption, been used for many, many years, has antibacterial, antifungal uh, properties in it, lots of other compounds, uh, which are beneficial. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, I have a coffee every morning. My wife has coffee. For years, she used the artificial uh, creamers and, and artificial sweeteners. Now she uses nothing but, you know, a little bit of honey and, and natural organic cream. And, and she can't even go back to tasting those other things because when she tastes them, they, they taste funny. Uh, they've got sort of a, a chemical tone to it that, that she, she used to drink all the time and now uh, has totally broken herself of that habit. When people break those foods like you've done, those ultra processed foods, those sodas, the analogy for me as a cardiologist is when somebody finally quits smoking and they come back to me, you know, six months later and they're like, hey, doc, I don't 
know how I ever smoke two packs of cigarettes a day because I can't even walk into a room where somebody's smoking. I have literally had people say, I can't walk into a fast food restaurant now because I that smell of that oil, um, it, 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 it makes me ill. But I used to crave that because I was addicted to it. So um, the, the, your personal journey and some of the things you shared, those are really, you know, blueprints for folks um, to, to get away from these and start to embark on their own culinary medicine journey. You know, it's it's a lot like, you know, taking a horse to water. I mean, I can I give you all the tools. I can give you, you know, share the knowledge with you. But but ultimately, it's your journey, not yeah, mine. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to be willing to take it. And I think that the uh, medical uh, uh, institution uh, has done a, a grave disservice to its, I'll call them clients, by inculcating their minds with the theory that the doctor knows best. Now, if I've got a broken leg, or in my case, a year ago, I participated in an Olympic sport. It was called the gallbladder clean and jerk because I had a golf, golf ball size uh, gallstone and my gall, gallbladder was uh, apparently very infected. But it felt like indigestion to me. <laughs> uh, by the way, I did score a gold medal in that uh, in that particular category. Uh, it was quite exciting. The doctor frustrated me though because I says, "Well, you know, while you're in there, could you take out my appendix? Because you know, someday it just may decide to go." And they say they don't know what it's there for. So she says, "No, because uh, we don't do twofers." So there you go. Well, actually, I, I will give you one thing that that while we think the appendix actually serves a vital function. Wait a minute! You said we think. We what do you mean we think? <laughs> well, we don't know for sure. There's still you know this is still an area active area of investigation. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things that it seems to do is is it's a safety net. It's a it's a, a kind of a reserve that when we do things and we have to like take antibiotics and we destroy our gut bacteria, the appendix is a little reserve of our natural gut bacteria that then gets back into our intestines and helps seed and repopulate our gut with the healthy bacteria that should be there. Yeah. So don't don't get it out unless you need it. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, well, she didn't take it out, so I still have it. You good, know. Good. <laughs> well, I tell you what, uh, we're talking with a chef doctor, Mike, and uh, we're uh, talking with him about a myriad of different issues regarding your health and well-being here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is really a pleasure to have uh, have Doctor Chef Doctor Mike here on the program talking about the work that he does. Uh, he has a book. It's entitled uh, Food. Shaman, the art of quantum food, which I'm sure we've touched upon many areas that are located in that particular uh, compendium. He's an he's an interventional cardiologist, as well as a professional chef, a professor of culinary medicine, and of course we've mentioned his website numerous times, ChefDoctorMike.com. Um, I I would be very interested just as we're wrapping things up here and knowing. What is the general health, based upon your living there, what's the general health of, uh, shall we say, most Montanians, if that's the right term to use? Uh, because obviously you're, you're around a lot of these folks. And in the, in the movie, or the, 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 the PBS special that I watched, I didn't see a lot of big people there. Well, you know, I'd say it's generally very healthful. Uh, one of the reasons um, I, I came up here, besides my position at the university, uh, and that we love it so is uh, the people are generally very active. 
Uh, so, you know, obviously Montana, big sky. So there's there's a lot to do outdoors, which means you're moving and you're doing things. And and for me, connecting with nature, so many great opportunities and to connect with nature in different ways. And the food culture here, at least where I am in Western Montana, is it, really phenomenal. It's very supportive of local, very uh, people want homegrown things. Um, so I have a lot of great resources. Um, on the PBS special, you saw, saw my friend Troy. Mm-hmm. So I've got access to, you know, grass finished, uh, organically raised, humanely raised, you know, bison. Uh, I've got an, another uh, friend who raises a heritage breed of uh, manganista uh, pigs from Austria, which again are, are raised organically. I, I go out to the farm. I see how they're treated. I see what they eat. I check it out. Um, we've got a CSA that I mentioned, uh, with a guy who is obsessed with his chickens. They, they live in this trailer that he dropped. So they not only free range on the fields, uh, where he grows the vegetables, but then he takes them to different fields in their little condominium on wheels so that they constantly have, uh, fresh things to eat in that field because most people don't realize chickens aren't vegetarians. They're omnivores. They're often eating bugs and getting other sources of proteins and, and really supplies me with the best eggs I have ever bought or tasted anywhere, you know, on the globe. Um, so, uh, I, I'm just delighted, uh, with this. Um, and this is Montana. It's wonderful, but for all the listeners, I'm sorry to say we're full. So, um, we're full. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's like saying Rhode Island is full. Uh, (laughs) Only in the case of Montana or Nebraska or North or South Dakota or Wyoming. Yeah, we're full. Go. Don't 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 come here. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And that's fine. You know, I I I myself want to move to Ireland. So don't worry. I won't be uh, I won't be moving there. But um, we are just a spot for you, Richard. What's that now? I'll visit. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you there what. You I'll visit. I won't move in, but I will. I'll visit for a few weeks or a few days, what have you. Uh, what an experience! I, the one thing that kind of struck me though was as you were walking through the uh, the area where they had the bison, uh, I noticed that everything was still squared off. And what why that brings the point to me is, I remember seeing the movie Temple Grandin. And uh, how she was trying to encourage the cattlemen to make circular uh, uh, corrals and so forth. Because that's how, for example, in that case, the cattle, that's how they functioned. That's how they were, that's how they moved around. They thought in, in curves and circles and so forth. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, that's, that just is sort of a sidebar kind of thing uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of making them feel more comfortable and so forth. Uh, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, but I want to thank you so much uh, for the time you've given us, and I hope that we get a chance to have you back again to talk about some other areas and issues. Because, again, there is so much uh, to, to inform the public about, and uh, we're not sitting here saying that uh, you are the oracle but we are saying you've got some information, you've got some source material, and at the same time, each individual that's listening needs to, uh, as you put it, trust their gut. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Richard, uh, so much. It's, this has just been so much fun, uh, so so great. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, 
to uh, share some information um, with the folks out there. Uh, much appreciated. ChefDrMike.com is the website. will be a link, of course, so that folks can find out more about uh, the work that you do. And uh, before we wrap things up here, I want to let you, the listener and the viewer, know that you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and then we also have our special edition on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. We're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And we're on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. And we certainly do hope that you go to our guest website. We also ask that you participate, as we've been talking in the latter part of this program, about going within, spending time in that, with that still, small voice, just being peaceful and quiet and uh, getting the guidance, uh, especially when it comes to uh, your own personal um, nutrition as well as your well-being during this, the decade of perfect vision. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing, uh, every uh, dollar that is uh, sent to us via PayPal, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you to those who have and those who will help. PayPal is our... Um, means by which you can uh, support us and be a part of the work that we're doing. It's there for your security as well as ours. We uh, now move on to <clears throat> the last three questions that I have for you, Doc, that I ask all of my guests, Chef Doctor. Uh, and uh, they are, uh, number one, the first one, and I'll go with the title that we've been using throughout the program. Who is Chef Dr. Mike? So uh, Chef, Chef Dr. Mike has the uh, spirit of a, of, a, of a shaman, um, the uh, soul of a pirate, and the heart of a hula girl. <laughs> okay, you're throwing me off here. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Um, I, I, I really want to empower people to, you know, positively... Um, reconnect, reestablish, and reforge their unique relationship with their food experience so that they can live healthier, uh, longer, and happier lives. So I, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, I want to be a, a resource um, for people uh, so they can take that information, take those techniques, apply it to their lives and be healthier and happier. Um, and, and I think that, that that can maybe lower the temperature uh, in both the literal and figural, figurative sense uh, of the times that we live in. Because um, when we're all happier and we share a good meal, um, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to be bitter and angry. It really is. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Culinary medicine. That, that's why I'm here. Well, Chef Dr. Mike, I want to thank you so much once again for joining us here on the program. And I'd like to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.